You're listening to audio from Gospel Light Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or support our ministry, please visit gospellight.sg. If you are taking notes, this is a handout that you can use. I know a lot of you are taking on your iPad. It will be really a lot easier to follow along if you have this, okay? And uh, today, I also want to wish all teachers and Sunday school teachers a blessed Teacher's Day. For all of those here, many of you have been my Sunday school teachers when I was terrorizing the church uh, when I was four years old, and I just want to thank all of you for just sowing little seeds into my life. But shall we begin? Man, it's quite scary to be the first preacher on Sunday when the masks are removed. So if my jokes are not funny, can you all at least pretend to smile uh, later? It's quite daunting now, I see all your expressions. Okay? But today marks a significant day in Singapore's COVID journey. It's the day when the mask can finally come off. And this gets a little bit tricky for the friends that we have made over COVID because the bottom half of their face is not what you expected. And I remember when I was meeting a friend I met over COVID and they took off their mask, I was trying so hard to hide my expression of shock because I had pictured something else in my head. You see, the mask brought us a sense of safety because it hit some parts of our faces. Maybe some of you are insecure with your nose. It's not as sharp. The nose bridge is not as high. I think so, not, not as high as you want it to be. You think your smile is a little bit awkward or your teeth is a little bit weird. Or like me, the mask actually helped me hide my acne and my pimples. For the teenagers here, I'm 28 and pimples haven't gone away. So you got to just hang in there. So just this week, as the mask mandate came off, I had the biggest pimple on my face appear. Thank God now it's gone because they are zooming in onto my face. And I remember walking into Wednesday night prayer meeting and I refused to take my mask off because I didn't want people to see the shame that I was hiding below. And when I opened the door, every single one of them had their mask off. And I was so pressured. So I started making excuses in my head. Okay, if they ask me why my mask is still on, I am going to say because I'm a concerned citizen. I'm going to say because I don't want to bring COVID back to my family. I started making all kinds of excuses in my head. Well, we are all, like me, we are all scared of being exposed, right? We are scared that when we are fully exposed, when people see below the safety of our mask, it would shock them because it's not what they expected. We are hiding something that we don't want people to see. You see, this entire COVID mask situation has revealed a little bit about my human nature and maybe your human nature. As humans, when we know we have something to hide, we do our best to cover it up. We give excuses because we are scared that when people see what's on the inside, it's going to shock them. Well, similarly, Israel has been hiding their sin, as Pastor Yufei mentioned last week. They've been giving excuse after excuse. And God has been peeling off layer by layer of those excuses. And it's come to a turning point in Malachi. Because God says this, Israel, with all your excuses, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Malachi is saying, Israel, your constant excuses has wearied God out. It has tired God out. Or in other words, in a Singaporean translation, I am sick and tired of all 
your excuses. For those, who have, for those who are children living under your parents' roof, isn't this a familiar phrase? When my mother would tell me that, that is the ultimate scolding. When I hear this, I know I have crossed the line. It's time to stop talking. It's time to sit up, look at my mum in the eye and listen to everything she has to say. You're awkward night, mum. However, Israel does not quite get the hint. Instead of listening to God, they continue their excuses. They say, God, where God? Where have I worried you? And this brings, them, brings, brings us to our first point, a continuation of Israel worrying God with their excuses. You see, hard-hearted, rebellious Israel accuses God of enjoying evil. That's a serious accusation, right? They call God a lover of evil. They say that God enjoys looking on as people suffer, as we see in Malachi 2 verse 17. And they cry out, where is the God of justice? Malachi, in this first point, seeks to defend God against the wrong accusations that Israel has made. Malachi is going to say, Israel, listen up. God is just. He has just not yet revealed his justice. Israel must look to the future events to see God's justice. But Israel is saying, how will I know when God's justice has started? Malachi says, he says, the first sign is that I will send a messenger to prepare the way. For those of you who have read the Bible, this is a familiar phrase because John the Baptist would come and prepare the way. John the Baptist will come to kickstart God's process of judgment. For the Israelites, this was in the future. God is saying, look to the future. My justice will come. And then, after John the Baptist comes, it says this, and then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will come to his temple to deal with the evil that is going on in God's temple. For those of you who, wasn't, who weren't here last week, Pastor Yufei told us that God's temple was in a mess because of his priests. Here's a key verse. You see, what happened in the temple was God's priests, who were supposed to be doing all the right things, were giving substandard sacrifices, which God called evil. Look at that. They were offering polluted food upon God's altar when God wanted pure, unblemished animals. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, they offer those that are lame. What's happening here? The supposed priests and religious leaders were insulting God through their substandard sacrifices that even earthly rulers would not accept. What more, the God of angel armies. Maybe you think this is a little bit distant and unrelated to us. However, the priests giving polluted offerings are kind of like pastors in churches we see today who are serving God inappropriately. This might strike a chord in some of us. Some of us come from church hurt. In the past 10 years, the number of scandals about God's leaders because of sexual misconduct, bullying, inappropriate behaviour, pastors living, leaving the faith has occurred more than ever in history. There's much hurt in the church. There's much distrust in the leaders. And maybe you, like Israel, are questioning God. God, how can you just sit by idly 
while your leaders and your pastors are behaving like that? God, how can you close both eyes when your leaders are living in rebellion against you? God, if there's any sense of justice in you, you are going to intervene. And maybe like Israel, you cry out, where is the God of justice? Well, thank God that Malachi is going to jump to God's defense for us. He tells us that Israel, he tells Israel that God is not unjust. In fact, in the future, when the Lord comes again, he will make everything right. Look at this verse. He says, Who can endure the day of the Lord's coming? Who can stand when the Lord appears? For the Lord is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi refer to the priests who were offering substandard sacrifices. On the day that God comes, there will be no more corruption in his temple. God says, I will be the one who delivers justice. I am the refiner. He gives two pictures here, right? The first picture is about the purification of silver. I'm by no means any expert with silver, but in its natural state, silver is not 100% pure. Silver contains many other types of metals and impurities. So in those days, actually also today, um, what the refiners would do is they would heat this um, unpure silver to crazy high heats so that all the other impurities and the other metals would melt. And what's left is nothing but pure silver. God is saying, this will happen to my priests. The same thing will happen. All their impurities will be burned away so that the priests will be like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to God. Is God just? Yes, He is. He is going to purify His leaders. The second picture is of fuller's soap. Fuller's soap is not a name of a detergent. Um, it's not front load or top load. It's simply a name for a type of soap they used in the past. Fuller's soap is really like washing detergent to us. If you look at the picture uh, on the right-hand corner, what they would do in the past is they would put soap into the washing area with the clothes, and they don't have washing machines at that point of time. So the lady there would start stomping on the, um, on the dirty clothes together with the fuller soap. And like our washing machine, it will produce pure clothes, clothes without blemish, clothes without dirt. God's saying, he is like fuller soap. The same will happen to the priest on the day of the Lord. All impurities cleanse, like clothes after a wash that are clean. So will the works of the priest be. But that's just what's happening in church, right? How about the things that are happening outside? There's lots of evil going on in Israel and God needs to solve that too. Well, he says this in verse 5. He says, then I will draw near to you. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Maybe today you are asking, how do I know that God is just? 
Here's how we know. In the future, God will deliver judgment. But the question remains is how about the here and now? What's God doing now? Is God on a break? Is he taking a holiday, just waiting for the, to deliver judgment on the future? Why doesn't he act now? Once again, Malachi gives us the answer. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, this refers to the Israelites, are not consumed, are not punished. For the day, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So why is God not punishing them now? He's saying, because I am faithful to the promise I made to your fathers. I am gracious. He is displaying current grace. He is patient and merciful with Israel as he was with their ancestors. They have been rebelling against him since the start. We live in a period of grace. This is one of the most common questions that we face, right? Is God just? Maybe you have talked to some of your atheist friends. The atheist argument would be this. They would tell me this. How can there be a God in this world if bad things are happening to good people and good things are happening to bad people? How can there be a God when evildoers do not get what they deserve? And even if there is a God, I do not want to believe in a God who is unjust. If I'm completely honest, this question stumps us many times. I don't know how to respond to these questions. And maybe even like them, when we look at the evil around the world, we question God. You see, we live in a time where the rich seem to get away with crime, where the mighty bully the weak, where, where might is right, where the justice system cannot punish the rich and the powerful. And we question, where is the God of justice? Malachi answers us. Look to the future. He is currently playing grace. See, Malachi took a lot of time, right, to refute Israel's accusation of God. He's launched a successful defense and now he's going to go on the offense. He's going to reveal that behind these excuses, he's going to reveal what is really going on with Israel. You see, in this first point, the accused, God is the accused. He's found to be innocent. And now the tables were turned. God will no longer be on trial, but it is now rebellious Israel who will go on trial. And this is point two, Israel's rebellion exposed. You see, God has been telling Israel this, Israel, return to me and I will return to you. This is unassuming at first, but Israel is in relationship with God. If as a, if as a husband you need to tell this to your wife to return to me, that shows that there's something really wrong with your marriage, right? You see, Israel had been disloyal to God. God is calling them, come back to me. Change your loyalty. Come back. Don't be disloyal. Israel had broken their commitment with God. To make matters worse, when God tells them this, I wish they would have just said, yes, God, I will return to you. But their hard hearts said this. He said, God, how shall I return? What am I doing wrong? You see, Israel is not blur here, 
But Israel is so far away from God and their relationship with Him that they can't see where they have gone wrong. One of the more interesting parts about my job, I serve in the varsity ministry, so it is the 18 to 25-year-olds, um, is sitting in the cars of new drivers. Um, you all laugh because you all know, right? Um, so the, the age group that I serve, they are all fresh um, off their, they have the new license, they, are all, they love to drive around and they love to volunteer driving all of us around. However, while I love their eagerness to serve, one of the issues that new drivers have is that they can be so fixated on one thing that they totally ignore what the rest that is going on. They are blind spot, huh? they don't check, they're just looking at what's in front. So as the varsity shepherd, I need to lead them and I also don't want to die in their car. Um, whenever they are lining up to try to get into the car, I will sneakily make my way to the front and say, hey, my leg's long, let me, let me sit in front, please. But the reason that I'm sitting in front is that I don't trust their driving at all. I, I really don't. And if I'm sitting at the back, I can't give the person any advice at all. And the thing that gets me really cautious and really anxious is when the new drivers are making a discretionary right turn. For those drivers, you know that, right? They try to inch forward. They try to observe the oncoming traffic. And new drivers often do this. They only look at the oncoming traffic and they, forgot, and they forget about the pedestrians they are crossing. And so I know because I look at them and they are just so fixated on the cars that is coming or is not coming. And so what's my job? My job is to tell them, hey, look at the pedestrian. Pedestrian, pedestrian, pedestrian. Don't go, don't go, don't go. Come back. You see, that's the thing with new drivers. They don't see where they have gone wrong because they are so fixated on the thing just in front of them. They are blind to the other things around them. Likewise, Israel was so caught up with their excuses. They were so caught up in their sin. They are so fixated and so blind to everything else around them that they could not see where they have gone wrong. And like the driver in the front seat, with, um, the, the guy in the front seat with the driver, he had to nudge them and tell them, look, wake up, observe what's around you. Malachi had to expose their sin. How does he do it? He says, he says this to Israel, Will man rob God? Yet you, Israel, are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You were cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. At first glance, it seems like this is just about offering. Just give the offering, you know? However, unlike the New Testament, the time we live in, as you observe what Pastor Jason said on stage, he says, there's no obligation to give. Give from a cheerful heart. However, for the Jews... Giving was a commandment. If you look at Leviticus 27, it says, Every tithe of the land, whether of seed of the land, of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's, is holy to the Lord. So Israel not giving tithes and contributions was not just that they were ungrateful. They knew the commandments, but they chose to rebel and disobey against God. You see, the robbery was... The robbery of God was something much more deep-rooted. But what is the extent of the robbery? In verse 10, we see this. When God calls them to come back, He says, Bring the full tithe into my house, that there may be food in my house. You see, the robbery was so bad 
that the temple could not even afford to feed its priests. What more function? The Israelites lived in a time where forgiveness of sin could only happen in the temple. So without the temple functioning, there can be no relationship between God and his people. When there's no food for the priest, the priest cannot work, there is no one to make sacrifices for Israel, and there is no forgiveness for Israel's sin, and then there is no relationship between God and Israel because of the separation due to sin. You follow that? No priest, no sacrifice. No sacrifice, no forgiveness of sin, no forgiveness of sin, no relationship with God. This means that Israel was not just robbing God, but Israel had zero desire to be in relationship with God. They are okay to continue their lives without God. They would rather continue living in sin and rebellion. And as God exposed their hearts, deep down inside, under the mask, a heart so far and distant from God. And they were accusing God for a lack of justice. But in fact, it was all excuses that they were making. You see, Israel and God had entered into relationship. All this time, Israel decided to rebel against God. Can I just ask you, if you had a friend who was in a relationship like this, what are you going to tell them? Well, I'm going to come out and tell them, you should break up. The relationship is toxic. It is so one-sided. Just call an end to the relationship. That makes sense, right? You, you have a partner that doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Just, just break up. Likewise, in response to Israel's rebellion, I'm expecting God to turn his back on Israel for good, to end the relationship once and for all. But what will God do? How will God respond to rebellious Israel? This is the third and final point. Israel's second chance. God gives them a second chance. He says, Israel, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What amazing words, right? The last sentence. He says, And I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not, shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God's saying to rebellious Israel, the second chance I'm giving you is full restoration of relationship. I will open the windows of heaven and pour down so much rain that you will no longer need any rain. It says that he will rebuke the devourer. The devourer was a pestilence that was going on at that time. They were eating all the crops of Israel. So Israel was working and they had nothing to eat because the pestilence was destroying everything. He will give fruit to the fruitless vines only if Israel returns to him. A final chance to return to the relationship, God will promise to pour out blessings on Israel. And then this passage ends off with one of the most amazing lines that I've seen. He says this, 
He says this, mind you, to a rebellious Israel. He says, Israel, if you turn back from your rebellion, then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You see, this is a familiar phrase in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. If you know the book of Malachi, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. But this phrase recalls something in the first book of the Old Testament. This is what God said to Israel's forefather, Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What's God saying here? God is saying that, Israel, if you turn back, if you come back to me, my relationship with you will be just like how it was at the start. The start of any relationship is always the most exciting, right? Um, for those of you who are with here, in here with your parents, try not to smile so hard in case they know that you have a boyfriend outside. Okay? Um, emotions and affections are high. You are crazy madly in love. Um, and I remember this to be a time when I proposed to my wife. I was so madly in love. Okay, my in-laws are here and her family is here. I'm still madly in love. Um, but the, this is just an example, okay? Um, and my proposal, I was ready to go all in. I, I told myself, I told my best friends, I said, we will make this the most romantic moment of her life ever. <sighs> wow, okay. You see, I did things that I would not usually do. This was in the middle of Botanic Gardens. I was willing to propose in front of a huge group of our friends. And uh, I don't really have the best voice in the world. Um, I was willing to take a guitar, sing in front of a huge crowd of strangers to profess my love for Belle. I was singing to her. The strangers were looking on and I told Belle, Belle, I will die for you. I will catch a grenade for you. I will jump in front of a train for you. Okay, if you laugh, means I'm still relevant. Yes. You see, for those of you who have been in love or are in love, you would have similar experiences. The start is always the height of the relationship. Everyone longs to go back to their emotion. And the amazing thing is that God is offering this to rebellious Israel. The chance to return to the height of their relationship. A second chance to start all over again. He's willing to forgive all their wrongs, all their sins. He's saying, Israel, if you come back, it will be just like this. A clean slate. What an amazing way to end, right? Let me wrap things up. Let's think about some applications here. Israel, in this text, had their mask removed. And it exposed an inner rebellious core. Behind the excuses was a rotten core. The rebellion was exposed. And just as Israel is exposed, this text too exposes our rebellion. Personally, this text revealed something festering in my heart that has been eating at me for a long time that I didn't really realize only until I started working on this. I'm, I'm new to working in church. It's, it's been less than five years. And I entered ministry having these super high expectations 
I, I want to run this perfectly run ministry. I want things to be totally effective and efficient. And deep down in my heart, if you ask me, and I can finally admit it, is that I really want to run the best university ministry in Singapore. So the bad part about this is that when the people that I, I shepherd, when they struggle with sin again and again and again, when they fail and they mess up, instead of coming to lovingly guide them, I realize that my first reaction is that I get angry, annoyed, and frustrated. And then I start giving excuses. I say, hey, you know what? I'm like that because I want to do God's work well. I want the ministry to be run well. Why are people like that? And I will use all sorts of excuses to justify my sin, but all the while, all the while I was really living for myself in rebellion to God. Below it all was a heart, or is a heart, that is extremely prideful. I want to be seen as a successful leader. And as I was just writing this, I realized that this entire thing was all about me, 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 me. It was really all about me and my success. To try to do things my way so that my name will be great. And instead of really serving God, I'm really serving myself. I ask that you would continue to pray along with me. I'm going to struggle with this for a long time. But the wonderful thing is that God offers a second chance to those who would return. So I, I know that after this sermon, I need to constantly return to make God the person I worship instead of myself. But the question now is, how about you? A lot of you here are my teachers, my pastors, and my leaders. Um, I do not mean the next part to be disrespectful, but this is God's pulpit, and I, and I need to be faithful to His Word. So forgive me if this comes on a bit strong, but I just need to be faithful to God's Word. Maybe for you, on the inside, is a heart living in rejection of God to chase the Singapore dream. You give excuse after excuse that you would come back to God after you've achieved your next car or your next house upgrade. You say, God, God, you wait. I'm going to make you a priority after I've achieved what I want. You are okay to put God on hold. But the problem with that is that it means you need to repeatedly say no to God every day in order to chase your dream. You tell God to wait. God, I will serve you one day in the future to mask your current rebellion. That is the dream, that, the, that is the Singapore dream that is sold to all of us. And we are okay with saying, God, I'm going to put you on hold while living in rebellion against Him. God says this, stop your excuses. Return. Come back to me. For some of us, it might be a sinful relationship that we are pursuing. An extramarital relationship or an unequally yoked relationship. And in order to sustain these relationships, you need to make excuse after excuse. After being prompted from sermons, you said, it's okay, I'll come back one day. When you read your Bible, you know that God is calling you back. When you pray, you know that the Spirit is convicting you, but you decide to give excuse after excuse to compromise again and again. You decide and you tell God, God, i rather follow my passions than you. 
God says, stop the excuses. Return, come back. For the rest, it might be a me-first, self-centered attitude towards church. I'm in church because the sermon is good. I'm in church to have my needs met. I'm in church for me. If it's out of my comfort zone, if it eats too much into my time, if it takes too much effort, I don't want to do it. So we make excuses. I have other more important things to do. When we come to church, we say, I want to be served. And we can even slip into a spirit of criti- criticism. You constantly criticize others and their service and their ministry, but you barely lift a hand. It's always about me. It's always about how the church can serve my needs better. But here is the real problem. The problem is that while you are in church, you are really here for yourself. When the Bible tells us that church is a community that needs to love one another, support each one, God says, your rebellion. Come back to God. For those of us who might be walking back into church for the first time in a long time, maybe someone dragged you here today. Someone told you, hey, just come and you begrudgingly come back. God calls you to come back and return to me. And the most amazing thing about the gospel is this, is that when our rebellion is fully exposed, God still takes us back. You see, for those of us who have been living in rebellion to God, that's the most, the most amazing thing about the Bible is this. You are, your sins are fully known, and yet, because of Jesus, you are fully loved. You see, there is a second chance that is talked about in the New Testament. This is, we see this in the prodigal, we see this in the parable of the prodigal son. For the friends here, for the first time, this story is so popular that you might have heard it before. This story is about a rebellious son who takes all of his inheritance from his father, he leaves the house and he rebels against his father. He squanders and he loses all his money and eventually he realizes that he needs his father. So he says this, He says, the rebellious son says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You can feel like that, right? When our sins and our rebellion is exposed, we hang our heads in shame. God, I don't deserve your love. You know what? I'm so messed up, God. You cannot possibly take me back. Hey, can I tell you that's, that's not the gospel, that's self-righteousness? Because the next part is one of the most heartwarming passages in the Bible found in the father's response. See, the son arose and came to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It would be okay if the story ends there, right? He gets what he deserves. But the father says this. He says to his servant, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, 
put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Instead of being treated with shame, the son is treated with love and compassion. Relationship restored as if he had never left. That's the love of God for rebellious people like us. Fully known, our sins fully exposed and yet fully loved. Do you catch that? And God says, come back to me. I mean, you come back to me, you don't come back in shame. You come back to a God who embraces you with open arms. So friends, if this is you today, come back, return, stop your excuses because there is grace and love from a God of steadfast love, a God whose mercy lasts for thousands of years. And that's the beauty in the gospel. If you are here today for the first time, if you are not a believer of God, and you find that your sins are just mounting and mounting and mounting, the same call is given to you. Return. Repent of your sins. And at God's Son's expense, every one of your sin was paid on the cross. So that when you come back, every sin forgiven, there is no longer shame, there is celebration. So please guys, don't walk out of here hanging your heads low in shame. As Christians, we walk out of here celebrating. Because as Christians, say again, your sins fully exposed, yet you are fully loved because of God's grace. Come, let us pray. I'd like to give us some time to just reflect before we pray. Because the gospel is so beautiful, it allows us to dig into the depths of our heart, to expose every single sin, every single bit of rebellion. We do not need to deny it because when we confess it and we turn back to God, everything is forgiven. That is the beautiful message of the gospel. Deservedly, we should have received punishment. There should be no second chance. But God, in all His graciousness, all His mercy and all His love, will look upon us and says, you are forgiven. Come back to the heights of my relationship with you. about it. Go into the depths of your heart, searching yourself, asking God to refine us. Stop our excuses. Come back. Return. For there is grace from God.
Let's pray. Dear God, we sin, we rebel, we stumble and fall. And yet every time we deserve to be punished, every time we mess up, you say that as long as we return, we would find the warm embrace, the compassion and love of a gracious Father. And because of that, there is no shame in the Gospel. There is sin, but because there is forgiveness, there is no more shame. God, would you work in all our hearts as we, we think about the areas that we need to return, the areas we need to confess of and repent of. Holy Spirit, would you do a thorough work in our hearts? Expose those sins that we might bring them to light, confess them to you, and find the loving embrace of a Father. So God, I pray that you'll be with us even as we leave this place and think about these things, that your love and grace would overwhelm us and compel us and make us want to come to you more. So we thank you for all that has been said this morning. We thank you for your love and your word. In Christ's name we pray.